Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Shrinkcast. Um, we are continuing a part two of uh, a series that we a bit unintentionally started last uh, time we had a Shrinkcast. I sat down with Phil and um, we talked during our last episode and in the middle of it, Realize that there's this whole other episode that we can dig into about work as play. And so that's what we're going to chat about today. Um, I do want to let you all know that we have a new clinician on our team. Her name is Alicia, and she uh, is ready to take new clients at Kessid. Um, some specialties to consider for her. Uh, she works a lot with grief and loss um, as well as trauma. And uh, any other specialties, Phil, that you think would be important to... She has extensive experience working with uh, eating disorders, uh, really appreciates working with identity development, uh, existential issues around meaning and purpose, um, and uh, is also willing to work with adolescents as well. Love it. So give Kessit a call. Um, and also, we're launching a new program in Spiritual Direction in May. Um, if you are someone that's navigating what spirituality is for you, or maybe you're processing what it used to be and what it is now, um, and everything in between, we are really excited to start offering this additional service to our community. So our direct number again is 720-575-9889 if you are in the Denver metro area. And our website is kessidwellness.com. And Kessid, since it's a nice and simple English word, is spelled K-H-E-S-E-D. <laughs> but I am going to jump right back into our episode today because I'm really excited to be back here with you, Phil. Um, we titled this series Thrive, mm -hmm. and uh, that is a concept that you and I talk about often. And uh, today we're going to riff on specifically um, work is play. So I'm going to let you take it from here, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, the last time uh, we did a podcast, I sort of riffed on, you know, the, the, the beauty of the English, English language and how definitions hold, you know, meaning and purpose that I think we lose as we, um, you know, uh, gain some distance between the way that we use words and our understanding of words. And so, true to that tradition, I, I looked up uh, the definition of play in preparation for this podcast and I actually found myself incredibly disappointed. <laughs> Um, the definition of play uh, roughly uh, uh, lends itself towards the idea that, that play is uh, the work that you do um, as long as it doesn't produce anything um, serious or practical or meaningful. Wow. Um, and I think specifically it, it says like any action that you take that doesn't, uh, um, you know, produce. And so... I, I really struggled with this idea because I feel like um, that is very, uh, it, it's a very opposite uh, understanding from how I've seen play uh, work out as a developmental imperative uh, for people who want to grow, who want to thrive. Hmm. Um, Say a little bit more about that, the developmental imperative. Yeah, so I think, you know, in in keeping with the theme of talking about thriving, I think the biggest thing for us to be aware of is our room for growth. And so when I, when I was trying to construct a better definition for play than the one, the different edition, uh, <laughs> Did the you provided, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I, I thought about, you know, the, the context that we understand it in. And so I thought about childhood. And so 
when I think about the way that a child engages in play versus work, um, you know, something that became clear for me is that work for a child or toil for a child is when they, when they cry or when they hmm. exude pain as a way of getting their needs met. That's so true. It's how they communicate. Mm -hmm. That's when they're working. Yeah, in some ways, maybe it's the first communication. It's the first tier of developmental communication. Children will cry before they play. Hmm. So play is also communication, but it's something that we expect to see in healthy development in a thriving child. A child that doesn't play is not thriving. Hmm. And so play is an indicator of thriving, I think is significant in the context of childhood, but also in the context of adult development. Oh, wow. So if you are not playing, you are probably not thriving. As an adult? As, as a human being, no matter what age you're at. Say more about that. I think, I think play really is, it's, it is meant to be uh, the, the next you know, developmental evolutionary stage of engagement with relationships, with work, with our environment. Um, you know, I think the core of the idea behind, you know, crying or, uh, you know, making everyone uncomfortable to get what you need uh, is, is when we first learn that we can transact our pain or our anguish for a product. That hmm. if I hurt bad enough, something might change. Like if a child cries and their parents will come bring them a bottle. That's right. Hopefully. Like a good parents will come respond to that child. Um, and good parents will also help prepare and equip a child with better language so that they don't keep having to exchange their anguish for the thing that we need. I see. So when kids are growing up, they're learning language. So how to ask for something politely, how to ask for something kindly. Sure. Let's, let's think about like what politeness is, what manners are. What are they except for a role that we are asking children to play that is uh, sometimes uh, against what they feel, right? Sometimes what they feel is I want to cry until I get a cookie. But the invitation is, but what if we did this instead? What if we, what if we played the role of politeness? What if you say, may I please have a cookie? And then we, we also, we, you know, try to make those connections where we reinforce the reality that if you, if you play in resourcing your needs, you're more likely to get them sooner and quicker and more specifically. You know, when I do couples counseling, sometimes I will, you know, remind couples that uh, criticism in a relationship uh, is the developmental equivalent of a child's cry in resourcing your needs. That's so true. So when we criticize our partner, we have an unmet need, but it is the least articulate and most painful way of asking for what we need. Right. Which I would say most adults, most, most people that find themselves in partnerships, that's not a conscious thought, right? No. Like we're not consciously thinking when I'm criticizing a, my partner um, you're not meeting this need, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it this way, right? right? Like if I had the conscious thought of, oh, this is the need that I have, mm -hmm. let me ask you to get it met, I would totally bypass all the pain of criticism. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but, but even that, that structure that you're describing, there, there is an innate playfulness in that idea. There's a playfulness in saying, 
hey, I'm feeling really insecure right now. I'm not totally sure why, but I'm going to give you the specificity of knowing exactly what it is that I'm going uh, through as a really good, playful invitation to meet that need. So I think that I need actually a new definition of play from you because I can mm-hmm. I can distill and think of children, mm-hmm. right, and how children, children communicate through play. Yep. Children... Uh, work out their world through play. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, it, it functions differently, it seems. That's right. So help me either understand the bridge between the two or how you are defining play mm-hmm. for the context of what we're talking about. Yeah. I think my first, the first iteration that comes up for me is that play is recognizing our inherent authorship around the way that we live our lives. Wow. Play is recognizing our inherent authorship around the way that we structure our lives. Is or live our lives. Live structure our lives. structures the same way, but it's that it's that idea that we are constantly um, creating new narratives. When a when a child plays, especially as they grow uh, in their ability to play, they construct diverse and complex and emotional narratives. Um, you know, I was I was remembering uh, some of my um, uh, own uh, play as a child, and and how I would, for some reason, I would always I would always make these these really emotionally intense narratives with these different characters or toys that I would play with, where there was betrayal and there was you know heartache and there was like the hero's journey and there was all of these these different parts and pieces that I found incredibly profound and exciting. I remember even making myself cry at a narrative that I'd created about toys I was playing with because that is the power of authorship. The power of authorship is that we can construct the narratives that inform the ways that we live our lives and the ways that other people are living their lives as well. So I really... Wow. I really love that. In fact, I just got chills because I know that we're going to spend a lot of the rest of our time in the sphere of adulthood, Mm -hmm. right? But I think it's really powerful to just take a moment and say, children have the power of authorship too. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to funnel play into kids being kids Mm -hmm. or... Children, you know, creating these make-believe stories as they're just that age, Mm -hmm. but that it actually echoes um, the way that that little being that is learning its voice and its place and its uniqueness in this world is authoring. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we see this in play therapy as therapists, you know, we can have a little bit of a unique lens because if you work with children and you're a play therapist... It's all about observing the worlds that they're creating through how they are authoring their own life story and how they're working out their own life stuff, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why non-directive play therapy can be so powerful. That's right. Um, But tell me about this and how it relates to adults, because we're talking about work as play. And so what does that look like? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the one last piece to add to that, because it relates to what adults do, is that authorship may be the only power a child has. <laughs> like, the existence of, of childhood is one in which we are immensely powerless, completely vulnerable. It's true. 
And the only power that a child might actually have is in their power of authorship in play, their power to create narratives. Maybe, you know, narratives of toys and dolls is the same as the narratives of the stories they tell themselves about the adults who care for them, the adults who don't, who are safe people, who are not people. All of that is the play of authorship, and it, and it, it is the most profound way for them to exert what little power they do have on their environment. And so... As a translation to adulthood, I think not actually that much has changed. Hmm. I'm not so sure that adults have that much more power than children when it comes to the power we think we have outside of the power of authorship. Say more about that. If I tell myself a story about who I am as a person, who I am as a professional um, let's say let's say that I, I, I write a narrative where uh, the, the ink and the quill that I use are the shame and insecurity that I have about my failings. And so I say that the person I am is never enough. The person I am is not enough. Um, and that's the, that's the story that I've, that I've created using my authority as author of my life. Right. Well, the, that's going to be very confining. That's going to be very difficult. And I think oftentimes when people are struggling with the idea of thriving, they're trying to uh, press back against a story that they themselves have created. So I'm not enough. And that's, that's, you know, that's my book. The title of my book is I'm not enough, but in my book, I'm, I'm really just, I'm really trying to, to be enough. I'm really trying to counteract that. Mm-hmm. And that, battle of wills with with ourselves is very confusing to me it's such an uphill battle um, that we think that you know we can't possibly overcome this idea even though we're the one that authored it and and we can see the way that the like the the, the way that changing the story changing the narrative can have such incredibly profound consequences on the way that we see ourselves and see others mm. You know, right when you said that, I I had the thought in my late teens, in my early 20s, I wrestled to my core with the belief that I am bad, mm-hmm. that that I am inherently bad. And it was, of course, tied to um, external factors of what I perceived or what I was told goodness was. But I wrestled so deeply with that to the point of suicidal ideation, uh, which I'm very open about. And, and then there was this transition of narrative, to, okay. to say what you're talking about, around my mid-20s, where suddenly I was overcome with this sense of, I'm good. Mm. Like, like, really, I am good. And it changed everything about how not only I felt in my day, right? You could say I tasted and saw happiness in a new way, but I would even say it changed when I got up in the morning because I wanted to. It changed how I worked out because I had more motivation. It changed, you know, there's this ripple effect. And so I think what feels a little bit blurry for me, though, is the word play and work. Mm. because um, even 
uh, words that I heard during my childhood of adulthood is leaving childish things behind you, right? right? Or uh, hearing somebody that may be feeling incredible stress at their job and they feel pressure to produce or show up or be perfect or whatever the thing is. And therapists wrestle with this every day. Um, play, uh, is something that you can do in your free time, Mm -hmm. but work, that is, uh, something that you need to show up for and get done now. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think what it does speak to is the culturally arrested development of our society's understanding of what it means to engage in work versus play. Because what I, the, the image that I get in, in my head when you talk about the, the scarcity of I can't risk play or that play is this indulgent thing. What it makes me think of is, is when people retreat to, you know, that brainstem, that, that fight or flight, that pain avoidant part of ourself. And in some ways that's like the earliest developmental position of like our identity is like that avoid pain, seek pleasure. And the idea that I can't risk letting go of transacting my anguish for productivity, because that is how I would define most work, most work is transacting your anguish for a product, transacting your, your, your pain, your life, your energy, your stress, your health, transact anything that you can transact in order to get a particular product. I need to make money to cover my health bills and rent. That's right. So I'm willing to do something that I hate. Right. So that I can cover my bills and my rent and my health care. In some cases, people say, I must do something I hate. I must. Think about how often people mistrust, stigmatize, or criticize people who enjoy uh, the work that they do or, or take the risk of seeking out work that is playful, that is joyful. Well, that's not real work. You can't possibly be an artist. You can't be a musician. You can't be... These other things that we've associated with play. You want to be a, a singer or a writer, an author? Notice how the theme of these things is creativity. The theme of these things is, is creating things. Which is really at that, that heart of authorship, that heart of play, is creativity. Well, and I've actually always mentioned too, you know, being an entrepreneur, I view numbers as uh, play. Hmm. Uh, financial modeling is one of my favorite things to do. It's like unfolding a canvas in front of me and just seeing how all the textures and colors and things move together. And people look at me dumbfounded, like numbers and what do you talk? And and that's something that sometimes, uh, you know, my, my undergraduate work is, is art. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes too, people can silo creativity to, if you are an artist, right? If your brain is leans towards more out of the box eccentric thinking, but the way I hear you talking about it, every human, no matter your predisposition, if you are an accountant or you're in construction or you're in tech or you're in whatever, work is play in in what I'm hearing you say would be relevant for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Could you give me an example of maybe when that became alive for you personally? Work is play? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it was actually something I stumbled upon in order to help me survive uh, uninhabitable work environments. <laughs> so I've worked in some work environments that were incredibly stressful, incredibly high crisis, um, very scarce, very intense, and. I was really thoughtful in, in, in that work environment that I don't want this to change or develop me uh, in a way where I become calloused, where I become numb. And it was certainly one of the most present invitations, I think, uh, anybody who might be listening to the podcast who's worked in residential, anybody who's worked in um, any sort of community mental health setting that is that is characterized by the intensity of the issues it addresses there is an invitation to callousness so that you can keep transacting your health for the product of barely making things better and so in trying to disrupt that process there was a there was a part of me um, that really was able to connect with the opportunity of play and the opportunity of play for me really did look like changing the narratives if something is stressing me out rather than trying to fix the thing that's stressful the first thing that i try to do is expose the story i've told myself about that thing what does it mean for me to succeed at that thing what does it mean for me to fail at that thing read ahead in the book a little bit and say what happens to this main character if they do this thing. And if I like the narrative, then I could keep it. But most of the time, I didn't like the narrative. Most of the time, I feel like I... I engaged with work so passively in that sort of anguish for, for product model uh, that the narrative was, was filled, out, filled out without intention. It was filled out without, um, you know, that, that sort of... Uh, that right to authorship. And so when I slowed down enough to, to think about play, I was able to, to really engage in, in revolutionary and innovative ways of engaging um, in the work that I did in, in these environments. I remember one, so I worked at a, a residential facility for children, and, and one, of the, one of the moments that I can think of where I most clearly engaged in play versus work is that we have kids who would refuse to get out of bed. Now, these are, these are traumatized, you know, often mentally ill children, and they have a lot of really good reasons to not get out of bed. And so I need to get them out of bed. I need to, you know, get them engaged in their hygiene. I need to get them downstairs to breakfast and then to school. There's all, the, all everything is scheduled in 15 to 30 minute increments. It's very tight. There's not a lot of room. And so my predecessor, the person who taught me um, you know, kind of how to do this milieu work and get these kids up. They're like, well, you really need to create, create a crisis. You need to continue to raise your voice until they know they're going to be in serious trouble if they don't get up, mm -hmm. if they don't get out of bed. And it really just rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, what are we, what are we modeling here? What are we modeling here when it, even when it just comes to motivation? 
-hmm. We are modeling for these children how they create the motivation to like get themselves out of bed in the day. And if my motivation to get myself out of bed is fear of other or fear of self, what is that going to translate to in other areas of my life? So the tool that I developed in this environment uh, is that I actually I sat down with each one of these kids and I asked them what their favorite song was. And we had everything from like a Weird Al Yankovic song to like, um, you know, there, were, uh, <laughs> there, there was uh, someone who did uh, the final countdown. Like there was just, mm-hmm. there was all a huge amount of diversity. And so what I started doing is rather than like sitting there and yelling at these kids until they got out of bed, what I expressed to them as I said, I'm going to play a song for you. When you hear that song, you know that you have until the end of the song to get yourself ready, to get yourself woken up, to get yourself in a headspace to, to get down and you know, be ready to go. And so for each one of those kids, they all had their 15 minutes. Uh, four minutes before it was time for them to get up, I would play the song for them. I wouldn't yell at them. I wouldn't raise my voice at them. I would just play a piece of music. And so I had their investment in this sort of different and playful change um, in still getting the product, still getting the thing that we needed, but doing it through play, doing it through just new ways of being and, and new creativity. And what I found is that I didn't have to transact my stress and my anxiety in order to get them out of bed. I enjoyed it as well. And so I think the, the clarity for me is that sometimes people fear play because they think it costs something. Hmm. We, we trust the one-on-one transaction that if I put in this much energy, I will get this, like the exact equivalent amount of product. Mm-hmm. Play from my perspective isn't a one verse one transaction. It's actually a one to two. Play is an investment. So if I put this thing in, I'm going to get more out of it. Maybe not even right now, but in the future for sure. And so when I developed this new intervention with these kids, it took a while, but we kept doing it. It didn't work right away, but eventually it was one of the the tightest run uh, dorms where people were, you know, we were out and ready to go. And we had 10 minutes to spare because instead of languishing in the battle of wills, it was an invite, an invitation in, in an investment of, we all like this a little bit better. Mm-hmm. We like doing this more. There's less cost, mm-hmm. there's less stress. And so if I still get the same product and I get to feel better about it, that's not a one ver- to one ratio. That's a one to two. Right. You know, um, uh, one of my favorite childhood movies in the 90s keeps coming to my mind. Did you ever see Hook? Of course. Robin Williams playing Peter Pan for all of you. If you have not seen Hook, please check it out. Um, Rufio, I I wasn't sure at that point in my life if I wanted to be Rufio or if I had a crush on Rufio. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, specifically in what you're talking about... um, there was a moment in the movie, and this doesn't give it away, but uh, when Robin Williams remembered, mm. he remembered that he was Pan. Mm-hmm. He remembered he was Peter Pan. Yeah. And what's so fascinating is the movie starts 
with him in this high-end, corporate, even Wall Street-like job. He's got his giant cell phone flip phone at the time. He misses his son's baseball game because of this work thing. Like, he is at the epitome of anxiety and stress, I think, in some of the ways that you're talking about this. And then this, the story goes on, and he goes back to Neverland. And, um, and what's amazing is at the beginning of the movie, he's terrified of heights to the point that he is mm-hmm. terrified to fly with his family in a plane. And then by this point in the movie, not only does he remember who he is, he remembers how to fly. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think that for most of us, it's almost like that. If we were to allow ourselves to step out of the ways that our culture and even we allow ourselves to be treated like warm bodies in a chair, to instead recognize that if we open ourselves up to be present and playful, we release control of outcome in some ways. Mm-hmm. But we become more alive and potentially even more effective if we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I would just add on to that that releasing control of outcome is necessary to create investment. Well, that's the illusion, right? Because I think when we keep ourselves in a transactional mindset, which is what you're mm-hmm. getting to, if we keep ourselves in the, the mindset of if I plug this block here and I show up this way, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I think. I'll just create this product and we're a cog in the real. Mm-hmm. And somehow we often think that we can control outcome. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my favorite uh, uh, articles as an entrepreneur is um, a Harvard vi- Business Review article that talked about how over 95% of all business provo- proposals mm-hmm. are incorrect. Mm-hmm. The forecasts that we make for what sales are going to do don't, 95% of the time, don't exactly match that thing. Right. Which goes to show you just how much we really don't have control over outcome. Mm-hmm. Could be far more. It could be far less than what we expect. But the reason we attach to it is because we're scared, right? right? So, how does somebody start to try this out without it feeling so overwhelmingly terrified? Right. It keeps them from it. Yeah. So there, there's actually there's there's two parts, like two very relatable. Um, common issues and crises that I think adults uh, face um, in the workplace. Uh, One is feeling like you're an imposter. And one is feeling like you don't have confidence. Now, these are obviously, I think, somewhat related. uh, But I want to to touch on both of them because Mm -hmm. I think they they have... um, Cool things happen when we engage in narrative around imposter versus confidence. And so, actually, I saw a a talk uh, that Seth Godin did recently, where he he touched on uh, the the commonality of this sort of imposter syndrome that people uh, experience, especially uh, young people and entrepreneurs, like when they start to get just a little bit of success, right? And they're like, "I don't deserve this. I'm not ready for this. I don't have enough experience yet." Um, and so somebody had asked uh, Seth Godin uh, the, the question of, you know, what do I do with my imposter syndrome? And he said, accept it. Be the best imposter you can be. He said, play it as a role. 
Hmm. So the idea being that like we're all actually a little bit imposters, right? None of us, uh, none of us are ever that you know uh, the most perfected version of the thing we try to project to others to build confidence in business. I want you to see me as someone who doesn't have any issues or problems. I want you to see me as someone who's not human. I want to see you, right? These are this is how we we trade. We we do this this ballet dance of impostering, um, and we just trust that well that person can act like they have it all together. So I'm going to trust them to to have my business covered. And so that idea being that if we want to get ourselves under the heel of the crisis of feeling like an imposter, we have to actually play the role. We have to actually just accept that, you know, maybe that, that thing we want to be, that we have to act that way, even if we don't always necessarily feel that way and that that can actually be okay. It can be okay for us to show up and, you know, be the successful entrepreneur, even though we have our doubts, even though we have our crisis underneath. Hmm. We have to tend to those parts as well. But to understand that it's a play and it's a dance, I think gives us the freedom to decide who we want to be in different spaces. Hmm. So how this relates to confidence is that, you know, I, it was through a conversation that I had with, uh, with my brother where I realized that that confidence for me, at least is much closer to sort of like a silly accent than it is to this this thing, the switch inside of myself that is flicked. And now I have belief in myself and now I have, you know, uh, trust and competency. And, right. And You've all arrived. That's right. I, I think that's the myth that, these pe- that people create about um, what I need in order to be confident. And so one of the things that I got curious about... Um, you know, because, you know, for, for you, for example, you know, you do public speaking, you, um, you know, are in all of these different spaces where you have to hold that air of confidence that you know what you're talking about, that you believe in what you're talking about, that you have some authority. And so, yeah, I, I was really curious for you, uh, if this idea of confidence as a way of speaking versus this thing that you always persistently feel inside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Is something that you've experienced, or you've experienced it differently? Oh, I, I experience it every day. You know, I the conversation about confidence is an interesting one to me because there are times almost every week that I show up to some business meeting and I sit there thinking, this person is so confident. And everything that they're talking to me about is very simplistic and showy. Mm. And I don't quite know what to do with their confidence because I kind of see through it. Mm. And then I envy it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I wish I could feel that confident about that simple thing and show up to this meeting and feel so good about myself. But what's interesting is I notice oftentimes some of the best um, people for uh, a meeting to use their voice can often be the least confident Mm. people. And I would say this is true, especially for female identifying people that step into CEO roles or entrepreneurial roles. Um, Oftentimes, uh, women were raised in cultures where it's not expected for them to be the boss. It's not expected for them to have 
the confidence of a leader, of a pioneer. And so um, I remember a mentor of mine, when I first started creating companies, came to me and said, Heather, you're not exuding enough confidence. And there was some truth there. I wasn't feeling terribly confident. That imposter syndrome was incredibly real. But I also didn't know how to express the confidence that I did have. Hmm. Like, hey, I have this really innovative idea that I think you should listen to. I didn't have the tools or the language to know how to do that. And so um, there are actually two resources that I found uh, deeply helpful because I also wasn't willing to sell my soul for an illusion of confidence. Hmm. Right? Like something I often hear for women in business is that we need to over exaggerate to match the kind of confidence that we see from male counterparts. <laughs> and I just don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. And so the two resources that really helped me learn how to play and lean into confidence, one of them was Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, mm-hmm. which is all about creativity. And then this other book that I love uh, by Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz called The Tools. And um, one of the tools uh, that these two therapists write about in this book, by the way, it's one of my favorite books. I know. We talked about it last time. We did? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not surprised. I talk about it often. Um, But they have five tools in the book, and and one of them is uh, uh, the inner authority. Mm -hmm. And I think even the subtitle of this book is all about unlocking our willpower, creativity, and courage. Right? So relevant to engaging work as play. And um, the tool of inner authority is all about befriending your shadow, Hmm. right? It's this idea that we all have a shadow self. We all have this part within us that holds our insecurities. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the worst side of us. Maybe it's the side of us we're scared we'll be exposed if we Mm -hmm. speak up. And the two steps of the tools, and and it's specifically relevant if you're going to be speaking in front of a group of people. It doesn't matter how large the group is. But I'll actually give a very relevant uh, recent example. Yesterday, I spoke in a room of about 300, and for the first time ever, I didn't use notes for my 20-minute talk. Hmm. So I go up on stage, no notes, we're in it to win it. And I was terrified. I mean, it's Notes are the fallback, mm-hmm. right? But I also really wanted to connect directly with this audience. And I also, if I'm transparent, wanted to believe that I could do it. Mm. And so literally just before I took the stage, I was sitting in the chair um, off to the side. And I um, envisioned my shadow uh, sitting right next to me. And um, I held her hand. Mm. And, um, once I had the shadow with me and we were in it together, Mm -hmm. um, the tool says the second step is to, uh, come to the audience and say, listen, right? Not actually not verbalize that, but internally say, which is the confidence part, Mm -hmm. listen. And that was the best talk I've ever given yesterday. Because the idea is that the tool of inner authority is all about unlocking our ability to Mm self-express, which is the heart of play. The heart of play is Mm self-expression. And so um, the ironic thing is that when we can self-express, we actually will go further in our careers or we'll go further in feeling alive or we'll go further in what we want to do in the world. But that's not what we think. Right. 
If I were to do things from a non-confident place, I would say, well, I need my notes right next to me just in case I forget. And then I'm going to fumble and be super nervous because I want to say everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right? But inner authority says, oh, I'm showing up and I got this. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking this huge risk. And shadow, you're in it with me. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing that I think is important to name is um, the struggle with confidence can often come when we are uh, not friends with our shadow. Mm. And uh, I I wrote an article once that um, perfect needs to sit next to shadow at our internal dinner table. (laughs) And uh, I really do believe that because to me, when shadow can sit next to perfect and both can have their proper place in your internal Framework. It's amazing the risks we're willing to take, and it's amazing how we can authentically show up where we aren't just spewing things so people think we're someone great. Mm. We're not just creating a reality so we feel good about ourselves. We're actually engaging in, in, um, in my opinion, uh, the most beautiful part of being human, which is being fully present and showing up, which is often what play is. Mm. It's being fully present and showing up because you have an openness. Mm. When I need an outcome, I am not present. Mm. I'm already in the future or I'm stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that stood out to me because I feel like it's a pretty it's a pretty common struggle for people navigating the pursuit of confidence to know where the line is between confidence and arrogance. People always want to pursue confidence, but they're held back by the fear that it'll come off as arrogant. And I think you you alluded to something earlier on where you said you weren't willing to sell your soul for the illusion of confidence. And I think that is where arrogance lives. Yeah, I actually heard somebody say to me, Heather, you need to come up right to the end of confidence, but not go over the edge to arrogance. Hmm. I think we have an inverted issue culturally. I think the person who really needs to step into their confidence, it will feel like arrogance at first. Hmm. And I think the person who needs to step off their arrogance <laughs> doesn't understand what true confidence really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fragile. It's vulnerable. That's right. It's vulnerable. And, and so that was, that was a huge test for me because it's safer for me to be in the background and let other people spew whatever they want to spew. But for me to stand up and say, no, 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 no. Listen. I have something to say. Hmm. Yeah, the being seen comes to mind. Because I think that, that idea of holding hands with the shadow self, uh, being an indication of true confidence, it makes me think of where's the shadow self in arrogance? Hmm. What corner have you placed that, that person that part of self. Because I think that really is, that's the, that's the, the line. That's the line that we don't want to cross is when we're basically willing to martyr or sacrifice or brutalize that shadow self and say that you don't have permission to exist with me in order for me to have something that needs to be said. In order for others to listen to me, you can't exist. So I think that fundamental denial of ourselves as human is that's the piece that I think does cross that bridge from confidence to arrogance. When we think we get to 
you know, we get to not be friends with that, that part of self and still show up. Right. So what would be maybe one, um, concrete or maybe tangible or even tactile, um, next step that you would like to leave with our listeners who are on board. They want to be able to play more as an adult, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to work. Hmm. I think the, the first thing that comes up for me is I would pay attention to the way that this conversation makes you uncomfortable. I think within each one of us, we have a part of self that wants to play, that wants to engage, but we view it as so risky. It's so risky to put in one thing and expect two versus to put in one thing and expect one. And so if we're curious where that, where that playful piece of self is hiding within our body, let's pay attention to the discomfort of the idea of what would it mean to play in our work. And so even if we just look at play from what we talked about before is just the recognition of your authority as author. I think the first step is recognizing the way that you've already written that story. You know, what is your role in it? What are the obstacles? What are, what are some of the elements of this character that, that make their actions predictable in some ways? Hmm. Um, I hear people exposing pieces of that story all the time in this work. Well, I'm just an angry person. Or, you know, I have a hard time with discipline. Or I, you know, I, you know, have, ang- have anxiety about like these certain situations. Or I, you know, I've just never been good at articulating myself. Or I just, right? These are all exposing different narratives that we've created and and held on to for a very long time. Sure. One of the most incredible things that I've seen happen in a therapeutic relationship is when I invite someone to the ability to change a narrative, to change the authorship. I can't tell you how many times someone has told me, I don't feel articulate or confident. And I say, "I, I experience you as very articulate and confident. So something is, something is different. Something is not as inflexible as we think it is. And that invitation to, to new stories, that invitation to new ways of creating that narrative, I think is the way that we can empower ourselves. Mm-hmm. We often feel victimized by our own narrative. And I think we often also feel victimized by the culture of transactionalism that says you have to put in a certain amount of pain in order to get anything worthwhile. Hmm. Where does the role of pain in play? It is, it's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Pain, pain exists as a, as you know, a, a, an obstacle or a roadblock, or sometimes a, even a landmark in the vast landscape of what it means for us to develop rather than it just being the only thing that we actually can engage with is our, is our pain. And so, yeah, I would say prescriptively, to start the conversation to play because I, when I've had this conversation with other people, it makes them profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> so one, embrace that, accept, accept that discomfort. And two, I think uh, it would be get curious, get curious about what would happen if parts of your story, if parts of your narrative, if you changed it. So you illustrated this at the beginning, such a, such a simple and yet such a profound change in narrative of I'm good coming from I'm bad 
revolutionary. And so how many other people are holding on to these narratives that have long since decayed? Mm-hmm. Where they're carrying around the corpses of their play self. And it's a, it's a weight that's getting increasingly harder to bear. And so instead, if we revive that play self, if we recognize that play is actually the next stage in our development, the next stage in our growth, the next thing of what it means to thrive, how does that unlock new opportunities? I love that. Embrace the authority of your own story. That's right. So good. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks. Cheers, everybody.